If I haven't met you before, my name's Emma, um, and it is a total joy to come and speak to you guys today. Um, before we kick off, I'm just going to invite Albert to come up, and he's just going to um, give our reading for today. It's a little round of applause. Yes. Come on up. Amazing. Um, and we're going to be reading from Psalm 40. So um, if you've got your Bible with you, feel free, turn to Psalm 40. Um, and we're going to be reading from verse 11. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. May all who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May all those who say to me, aha, aha, be appalled at their own shame. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. You do, do not delay. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, a lovely, intense psalm just to start with, isn't it? Um, so why don't we just pray before we kick off? So Lord, we just thank you for your presence with us. We thank you that you are good. And we just welcome your spirit here now, and we open up our hearts to what you might want to say to us today. Lord, would you come and take these words and use them for your glory? Amen. Amen. So over the past few weeks, we've been in a teaching series called Songs from the Frontline, um, doing a deep dive into the Psalms. And the book of Psalms, it's commonly known as the hymn book of Israel. But the beauty of the Psalms is that these aren't just kind of quaint little poems for when life is going well. These Psalms contain the full spectrum of human emotion. Like you've got Psalms of lament, of grief, of anger. You've got Psalms of jubilation and joy and then everything in between. And just like songs are a gift to us to help us process our emotions, these psalms have been a gift to people throughout the ages as they've taught people how to bring the full spectrum of their emotion before God. And we're living in a moment right now, right, where there is a lot of emotion to process, like individually and corporately. And so our hope with this series is that we, um, as we look through these psalms together, we might learn how to take the questions and the doubts like the sorrow and the hopes from the past 18 months and bring them to the feet of Jesus. Um, and Pete, um, because he loves a diagram, he's broken um, these psalms down into three categories. So we've got psalms of orientation. These are kind of your psalms of thanksgiving when life is going well. You've then got psalms of disorientation. Um, these is when you hit something, something comes up in life and there's grief and there's lament, there's anger. And then you go up to psalms of, psalms of reorientation. And this is when um, you've come through the pit, you've gone through the valley, um, and you're thanking God for his faithfulness and his goodness. Um, and so last week, Damalola and Anna, um, they looked at Psalms of Thanksgiving. And so tonight, we are going to enter into Psalms of Disorientation. We're heading down into the pit, um, and we're looking specifically at Psalms of Intercession. And these Psalms, they're written from the pit of despair. You know, when life is falling apart all around you. It's this raw cry out to God to come and break through. So often in these psalms, there's anger at the way things are, and almost quite like an uncomfortable boldness from the psalmist, demanding that God does something about it. 
And I don't know if you can relate to kind of prayers like this at all. Like my guess, um, if you've gone through any illness or some kind of personal crisis, you might have uttered some of these prayers. Sometimes they're not kind of hugely theologically correct. Uh, They're more just kind of raw, unfiltered cries of like, Lord, help me. And we saw this during the start of the pandemic, right? Like one survey found that one in 20 people who had never prayed before started praying at the start of lockdown. But these prayers, they're often provoked in a time of crisis, in this moment of disorientation. But these psalms of intercession, they're not just kind of therapeutic exercises. Like intercession isn't simply voicing our desperation out into the ether. To intercede is to stand in defiant hope against the disorder of the world. Not in some kind of like stoic or bravado way, or in a way that kind of denies pain and suffering. No, intercession is the exact opposite to that. Like to intercede, we step into the pain. We recognize the grief of a broken world. And with our eyes fixed on Jesus, we pray for God's kingdom to break through in the midst of the most horrific and hopeless situations. There's a guy, um, a writer called Walter Wink, who I just think has the most excellent name. Um, But he puts it like this. He says, intercession is spiritual defiance of what is in the name of what God has promised. Intercessors visualize an alternative future to the one apparently fated by the momentum, that's a hard word to say, momentum, of current forces. Prayer infuses the air of a time yet to be into the suffocating atmosphere of the present. History belongs to the intercessors. And this week, um, I've just been reading um, the testimonies of countless men and women throughout the ages who, in their moments of disorientation, have grabbed hold of what it means to intercede. Their circumstances, they're anything but good. They really are praying from the pit, like kind of battling illness, grieving the loss of loved ones, experiencing poverty. Like from a worldly perspective, there is absolutely no reason for hope. And yet they're found in the middle of the darkest nights. Their prayers speaking of a deeper truth that our world so desperately needs to know right now. Like they've resolved in their spirit that God is good and he causes people to pray. So they celebrate when the miracles come and they choose to keep their hearts soft even when they don't see the breakthrough. Like the joy and the hope um, that they carry it almost feels offensive when put into the context of their circumstances. And yet their stories testify that no matter how dark the backdrop of our lives become, there is always hope because Jesus has the final victory. Um, And the stories that I've found um, have really just challenged me, like they've brought me to tears at times, because what shines through so clearly in these people's lives is the power of the gospel. And I just haven't been able to shake um, kind of that sense all week, and I'd actually written what I thought was quite a good talk on intercession, Um, but just last night, just the Holy Spirit just kept on nagging me, and so I've kind of rewritten this talk, um, just kind of in light of this stuff. So this is a slightly less well put together talk, um, but it's from the heart. Because I think um, God wants to grab our attention, KXC, and call us back again to be a people who don't just pray panicked prayers for personal preservation, but a people who have caught hold of a communal vision of intercession that reveals the gospel to our city. Um, And one of my favorite stories of um, what happens when people do this, um, it comes from uh, New York in the 1850s. Um, And in the year 1857 in New York, um, it's plunged into a moment of corporate disorientation. The stock market crashes. And so overnight, thousands of men become unemployed. 
And obviously, when so many people lose their jobs, um, it affects the whole city. So families, they don't know where their next meal is coming from. Um, people aren't able to pay their rent. Businesses fold. Um, kind of railroad companies, they go out of business. Factories close. It was this moment of corporate shaking, like total instability. And a bunch of Christians in that moment, they stumble across what it means to intercede. And soon 10,000 people are gathering daily to pray. So much so that the headlines on the major newspapers, they're not occupied by unemployment figures, but by the numbers of people who are turning to Christ. You know, they've discovered that simple requests made to the Father can expect an answer. So you've got kind of penniless widows praying for sick businessmen, and then you've got kind of questioning teenagers praying for anguished mothers, and family starts to form in these prayer meetings. And one of the focus of the prayer meetings was to pray for loved ones who don't know Jesus. Um, and extraordinary things start to happen. I just want to read you kind of one testimony of, of what happens in that time. So it was a father, um, he kind of stands up in the middle of this prayer meeting and he just asks for his three sons who live in separate parts of the country, just says, can you pray for my sons that they might come to know Jesus? So they kind of dutifully pray. And a few weeks later, he comes back to the prayer meeting, he stands up and in his hand, he's got three letters. It's a note from each of his boys who he hasn't spoken to for ages, but each of their own accord, they'd encountered Jesus over the past week and they'd written to tell their father of their conversion. You know, addictions were broken, like families were restored, unethical businessmen start to change how they do business. And over the course of a year, one million people encounter Jesus. Like one million people encounter the love of the Father. Why? Because a bunch of Christians, in the midst of their own moment of kind of personal crisis, they chose to cry out to God for the sake of the city. Like we are in a moment of cultural crisis where everything is shaking, where suffering is all around us. But we have a story that doesn't gloss over suffering, that doesn't get embarrassed by it or tries to ignore it. Like our gospel stares suffering straight in the face. It gives moment, it gives meaning to these moments of disorientation. But more than that, we get to be a people who point to something beyond the suffering, to a God who is over it all. Like we get to stand in the gap and pray for the kingdom of heaven to break out in our midst. And I don't know about you, but I want to see that happen in London, right? But there's this tension. Because if you're anything like me, you're like kind of on the one hand, I'm up for this. Sign me up. This sounds amazing. And then on the other hand, I'm like, I'm shattered right now. Like I've never felt as weak as I do um, at the moment. And I'm sure many of us in the room, I'm sure many of us at home feel that, stripped of energy, kind of aware of our flaws in a way that we didn't really know them before. For some of us, if we're being honest, our faith feels pretty knocked right now. You know, we're just trying to get to the holidays. We're just trying to get to that next moment of rest. You know, maybe when we feel better, we'll engage with this stuff again. Like when we have energy or things have calmed down. But one of the biggest lies of the enemy is that kind of this stuff, like standing in the gap and contending for God's kingdom to come, will sap you of life. Like in fact, you know, and I can testify to this, the very opposite is true. It's the very thing that brings life. Because when in our moments of hurt and brokenness, we choose to be channels through which the life of the kingdom of heaven flows through to the rest of the world, guess what? Like the life of the kingdom of God flows through you. Like we discover there's actually more rest here than closing in on ourselves and hunkering down. We discover there's a grace available to us in this moment that we don't get when we try and go it alone. 
And please don't hear me wrong here. Um, I'm not talking about kind of rushing through grief or, or denying pain. And Lois and John next week, they're going to um, spend a whole chunk of time looking at what it means to lament and that crucial gift that it is to us. But as the writer Paul, um, the Apostle Paul, says to the Philippians, as he's kind of writing from his prison cell, he's basically saying to these guys, like, fix your eyes on Jesus in these moments. And as we press in, as we share in Christ's suffering, becoming like him in his death, we encounter the power of his resurrection. Like, there is a joy and a steadfastness of spirit that only comes when we run after him. You know, the most beautiful truth um, that the Psalms of intercession teach us is that it's precisely in our moment of weakness, in the moment when we feel fragile, that God can use us to bring about extraordinary life. So, Kexi, what if we chose to let God into this moment of disorientation? Like, what could happen in us and through us for this city? So just using a few of these psalms, I just want to spend a few minutes um, looking at how we cry out to God in moments of disorientation for ourselves and for others. And so there's just two points I just want to kind of highlight tonight. And the first is that desperation leads to dependence. And secondly, that agony leads to authority. And you thought the Revelation series was intense. We're going after desperation and agony tonight, so good luck. Um, So firstly, desperation. In these moments of crisis, there is an opportunity for our desperation to lead us into greater dependence upon Jesus. So in the psalm that Albert read um, right at the beginning, we can see the level of desperation in the psalmist voice, right? Like in verse 13, oh Lord, come quickly to help me. In verse 17, like I'm poor and needy, may the Lord think of me. In another psalm of intercession, in Psalm 12, um, the psalmist says, Help, Lord, for the godly are no more. The faithful have vanished from among men. You know, as I've been reading through these psalms this week, I just want to be really honest with you. Um, Something to do with the tone in the psalmist voice has just really provoked me. Um, I almost started feeling a bit angry at the psalmist. And as I sat with a bit to be like, what's going on here? Um, I realized that the thing that was offending me was his intensity. I kind of felt uncomfortable about the level of intensity that is in some of these psalms because the intensity by which he's praying reveals the level of desperation that he's feeling. And the reason that was causing a reaction in me is because whenever we get confronted with desperation, we're reminded of the truth that we're not in control. And this is what moments of disorientation do. Like they force us to see the truth that we aren't in control. Maybe it's a diagnosis of a health condition. Maybe it's the sudden failing of a business or the loss of a loved one, a relationship breakdown. Like what happens in these moments is the illusion of control that we've tried to preserve so hard comes crashing to the ground. And being confronted with our lack of control, like for many of us, is an offensive truth. Like in my case this week, it caused anger to rise up within me. But what's behind that anger is fear. Because a world in which I can't control, everything feels unsafe. I don't like feeling vulnerable or exposed. But we have two options in that moment, right? Like either we spend our lives trying to ignore this fact by going on a relentless quest for certainty. And so in that moment, self-sufficiency becomes our idol. And what happens in that place is everything depends on us. But you know, when we do this, we become exhausted because we weren't designed to live like that. We weren't designed to hold everything together, to never exhale, just to soldier on through life. So what's the other option? It's acknowledging our desperation, not running from it, but acknowledging we can't save ourselves. 
and instead choosing to lean upon the Father. You know, taking down that idol of self-sufficiency and instead coming to God and simply asking for our daily bread. You know, God is a father who longs to look after his kids. So how do we do this? What does that look like? Well, one of the most common exhortations um, of the psalmist in these psalms of intercession is to wait on the Lord. And we see it right at the start of our chapter today in verse 1. And this word wait in Hebrew um, is kavar. Um, I've said that with confidence. I'm not entirely sure of the pronunciation, but we're just going to go with it. Kavar. Um, and it has a twofold meaning. The first is a binding together like a cord. So just as kind of rope is made up of different strands, this idea of waiting on God is to become entwined with him. Just as rope's strength comes through being made of many strands, like our strength comes from being united with God. And then the second meaning of kavar is to wait actively with anticipation, hopefully watching for God to act. It's the same kind of waiting that kids have on Christmas morning when they're kind of waiting for their parents to get out of bed so they can open their presents. And so it's quite shocking, really, because the psalmist is saying in those moments when life is hard, that when we've fallen into the pit, resolve in your heart not just to express your emotions to God, but to bring your needs to God and actively wait on him with the expectation that he's going to come through. And this is what the psalmist does. Like he lets his prayers go up to God, petitioning him for what he needs. Often quite boldly. He's like, Lord, your name is deliverer, so come and deliver me now. Or like, Lord, you've promised to provide, so come and bring your provision. Pete Gregg, he he puts it like this. He says, we cannot, with any integrity, jettison or domesticate our belief in the power of petitionary prayer and still lay claim to any form of Christian orthodoxy. Others' aspects of prayer are wonderful, but our primary privilege as God's children is to ask audaciously and repeatedly for everything we need, expecting him to answer naturally or supernaturally by whatever means he sees fit. But just to name kind of the elephant in the room, at times that feels hard, right? Because what about the times when he doesn't seem to come through in the ways we want him to? What about the prayers that just haven't seemed to work? You know, I've prayed prayers for loved ones. I've cried out for them and I've still seen them pass away. Like there are areas in my life where I'm crying out for breakthrough and I still haven't seen it yet. And that's painful, right? And we know that one day there will be a day when there is no more mourning, no more crying, no more grief. But until that kingdom comes on earth in all of its fullness, we live in a world that's still broken. And we're called to stand in the gap, praying for the life of the kingdom to come and break into our present reality. And so there are times when we will see those breakthroughs. Um, And there'll be stories, countless stories in this room of the miracles that we have seen. And we're to celebrate them. But there are moments when we don't always see the breakthrough. And we live in the tension of the now and the not yet of the kingdom of heaven. And there's two options when we feel that pain, right? We can let cynicism take root in our heart. And this can be quite subtle, um, and it comes from a place of trying to minimize disappointment. But what happens is we say, like, I I tried praying once, I poured my all out, and I got hurt. I didn't see the answer. And so the only way I can control not getting hurt, again, is to minimize my belief. Like, I won't throw out God altogether. I'll just dilute, dilute him down to a level where I won't feel the pain of unanswered prayer anymore. And so you lower your expectations. You give up petitioning God for things. So what's the second option? Well, the second option is that you recognize that there is a tension, a painful one. 
But instead of trying to resolve that tension, you lean into it and you choose to trust God with it. And you carry on praying. And going back to earlier, um, this is what's really got to me. This is where the tears came from this week um, when I was reading those testimonies. Because um, it's just the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness to prayer that I was reading in these people's lives blew me away. Um, Hudson Taylor, for example, he was a missionary to China in the late 19th century. um, And he spent his life just sharing the gospel. But he faced so much tragedy in his life as well. But there was this intimacy he had with Jesus that despite some of his prayers not being answered, he never gave up contending for God's kingdom to break out. Um, In one moment, he recounts the death um, of his little girl, Gracie. And I just want to read you um, what he writes to a friend. So he says this, Beloved brother, I know not how to write to you nor how to refrain. I seem to be writing almost from the inner chamber of the King of Kings. Surely this is holy ground. I'm striving to write a few lines from the side of a couch on which my darling Gracie lies dying. Dear brother, our heart and flesh fail, but God is the strength of our heart and our portion forever. And then a few days later, he goes on to write this. Our dear little Gracie, how I miss her sweet voice in the morning. One of the first sounds to greet us when we woke. And through the day and at eventide, as I used to take walks, taking her um, trip, with her tripping at my side, the thought comes anew like a throb of agony. Is it possible that I shall never more feel the pressure of that little hand? Never more hear the sweet prattle of those dear lips. And yet she has not lost. I would not have her back again. The gardener came and plucked a rose. And as you carry on reading his testimony, you see that the intimacy he has built with Jesus, the trust that he has in God, leads him actually into a deeper dependency upon him. Like as he stares suffering in the face, you see his desire for God's kingdom to break through, burn all the more brightly within him, and it leads him to his knees in intercession. Like his life is marked out by constant petitionary prayer and a defiant hope in the face of darkness. You know, the beauty of what Hudson Taylor um, shows us is that we don't need to deny the pain of unanswered prayer. Like what we get to do is bring that to God, express the fullness of our disappointment and questions. And yet neither do we get to give up praying. Until that kingdom comes to earth in all of its fullness, we are called, we as the church, are called to be a people who stand in the gap. It's what it means to follow Jesus, to pray and contend for the light, to break into the darkness. And this is what we constantly see in the Psalms of intercession. The psalmist isn't content for things to stay as they are. When we hit these moments of disorientation, it's not a moment to be silent. It's a moment to raise our voice in petition to God. You know, my cry this week has just been like, Lord, forgive me for when I've allowed cynicism to creep in. Like when I've stopped asking. Like I want to cultivate a heart that is so wholly leaning upon you. Like actively waiting in expectation. So how resolved are you in your heart of the importance of prayer? Like, Will you allow those moments of desperation to form in your life a greater dependence upon Jesus? So firstly, desperation leads to dependence. And lastly, um, agony leads to authority. Um, and I desperately searched for a story right here just to bring us up for a little bit of air for this moment because um, I'm aware of how intense this is. I searched high and low for us. Um, so sorry, couldn't find one. So we're just going to head straight back down into the pit again and we're going to move on to agony. Um, so agony leads to authority. Whenever you see intercessions in the Bible, it starts from a place of pain. Like listen to the psalmist language in verse 12. 
For trouble without number surrounds me. My sins have overtaken me. I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head and my heart fails within me. Or when you read the prayers um, of other intercessors in the Bible, like Moses, Hannah, Nehemiah, you know, your Sunday school classics, um, what you find buried in those texts before they start to intercede is that their first response is to weep. They don't run from the pain. They step into it. But what emerges from that point of agony are prayers that carry incredible authority. The problem is we live in a culture, though, that desperately tries to avoid pain at all costs. Like we consume, we self-medicate on, you know, drink, drugs, Netflix, work, whatever it is, fill in the blank. And rather than healthily processing pain, we just numb our hearts, not only to our pain, but to the pain of others as well. And it's really hard to persist in prayer with hard hearts. Like when comfort is the dominant value of a culture, feeling others' pain will always be an enemy. And some of you will have heard this before, but um, there's an incredible book by um, Dr. Paul Brand, and it's called The Gift of Pain. And it's a brilliant book about how leprosy works. And what leprosy does is it attacks the pain receptors in your body, so you just can't feel pain anymore. So most of the injuries and eventually deaths that happen through leprosy actually isn't because of leprosy itself. It's because of something else um, is wrong and they just can't feel it. So like infection gets in, they don't realise they're hurt. So Dr. Paul Brandt, he kind of discovers how this disease works and he writes a book about it. Um, and in his book, he tells the story of one man um, who kind of comes up in his research. And this guy kept on waking up in the morning um, and he had deep flesh wounds on the tops of his fingers and he just didn't know what was going on. Just every morning there was just like flesh wounds on the top of his fingers. Couldn't work out what was happening. And so Dr. Paul Brown says, like, that's okay, let's try and work out what's going on here. Um, and so what they do, um, he's like, we're going to do an observational study. We're just going to come around to your apartment. Um, you sleep and we'll just kind of watch you. Bit creepy, but um, that's what they did. Um, but what they discovered was that whilst he was sleeping... Rats would come in the night and nibble his fingers. Absolutely disgusting, right? Totally grim. Paddy's really just <laughs> not loving that. Um, absolutely awful. Like this guy, this poor guy, he wasn't doing anything wrong. He just had leprosy and so he couldn't feel it. He'd sleep right through it. And what um, Dr. Brown concludes is that whilst pain is never wanted, it tells us that something is wrong. Like, we never want to feel pain, but it allows us to know when we need healing. It wakes us up to the truth that everything isn't right. When you can't feel, when you're numb, you have an inability to respond. Like, that rat could have easily been taken out, right? I mean, utterly gross creatures. Um, but they're no match for a human being. But not if you can't feel it. Like for so many of us, it's actually the saturation um, of the brokenness of this world that's caused this numbness in our hearts. Like we walk through the streets um, and we just see pain. The past year, full of pain. Walk through, kind of, you know, scroll through the BBC News app, like story after story of heartbreak. And we've become desensitized. So we've stopped believing that anything could change. You know, the pain of our cities become normal to us. So how do we wake up numb hearts? Well, I think quite simply, we just come before God and we ask him to break our hearts for what breaks his. And as we do that, as we come before him, his presence with that prayer, you'll find your heart softening, often towards something specific. Like, and this isn't going around kind of, you know, bearing the weight of the world on your shoulders. That's not what I'm talking about. This is feeling the father's heart for something. 
Maybe it's a place, um, a city, an injustice. I think there's something for every single one of us in this room. But as we feel the pain of that thing, we raise our voice in prayer. Not in some kind of like neat, polished prayer, but as the psalmist does in raw, persistent cries out to God. And the thing is that those cries have incredible authority. Richard Foster, he writes about prayer. He says, the weapons of our resistance make us appear to be completely irrelevant to a world based on power, efficiency, and control. We speak the truth. We pray for our enemies. We refuse to cooperate with injustice. And yet, incredible as it may seem, these weapons are powerful in pulling down strongholds and bringing to birth the righteous and peaceable kingdom of Jesus. As I said earlier, we're not just in a moment of kind of personal disorientation, like culturally we're in a crisis right now. We're in a corporate moment of shaking and our our society's remedy doesn't seem to be working. Like we seem to just keep passing the blame, ignoring um, the pain of that because no one has the authority to transform it. Everyone's snatching at power and living on borrowed authority that can't bring about lasting change. But we belong to a different story. We are a gospel people. We are called to follow the movement of God who doesn't just stand from a distance but runs towards his creation. Who doesn't just cast judgment down from heaven but gets down into the mess of humanity to redeem it. Like we're called not to stand apart from our city and judge it from a distance but to step in. To stand with and pray for the impossible to happen when everyone else has given up hope. Like what our city needs right now are men and women like you and me whose hearts are broken for our industry or for the area that they live in, you know, or who are willing to wed themselves to the well-being of their communities, like to sacrifice, to commit, to stay in one place when everyone else thinks it's foolishness. You know, but what emerges from that place are prayers that carry incredible authority. Like from that place, we start to pray prayers that see strongholds toppled captive set free like dividing walls broken down cod's kingdom breaks out so what would happen in this moment if instead of just hunkering down of kind of you know choosing personal preservation what if we came before god in this moment and just offered ourselves to him in whatever way he wants to use us like when we saw suffering and pain we didn't numb our hearts to it or run from it but we chose to raise our voice in prayer Like what stories might we see of the miraculous breaking out in our workplaces or with our neighbours, not because of how good we are or, you know, how hard we've worked, but because we've caught hold of what happens when we pray. Um, So we're just going to land, but um, I just want to land with one of my favourite stories. Um, And some of you have heard it before, but it's a corker, so I'm going to tell it again. Um, And it's of a story of the Salvation Army Church in Japan um, in 1902. And there were around kind of 100 men and women in this church in Tokyo. And they spent much of their time praying for their city. Um, And they were getting a new leader. A new church leader was coming in. And so the church leader, he gathers them together. And he's like, right, guys, you know, tell me a bit about yourselves. What's the vision? Like, you know, what's the strategy? And they turn to him and they're like, that's easy. We've just had an all night night of prayer. um, And God has clearly spoken to us. He's broken our hearts for the women caught up in trafficking in this city. And he's given us a clear vision of just shutting down the brothel system that's at work in Tokyo. So he's like, right, okay. (laughs) Um, That's quite a big vision. Um, And the brothel system that existed was just full of kind of girls who had been sold into sexual slavery to pay off family debt. So they're being held against their wills by this brothel owner. 
Um, so this new leader, he kind of hears about the plan. He's like, guys, I love your enthusiasm. Um, but there's 20,000 enslaved women at the time. There's a hundred of us, quick doing of the maths. Like, maybe let's just kind of scale it down a tad. Let's just choose something easier. Let's get a win under our belts first. Um, but sure enough, as he prays, God just breaks his heart for these women. So they come up with a plan together. And it's probably the most ridiculous plan you will ever hear. Um, they basically decide that next Saturday, they're just going to go and invade a brothel. That's the plan. They make one million copies of um, this pamphlet, which um, teaches people why they shouldn't um, kind of yeah, buy and sell women. Um, buy and sell women. They send it out. They kind of ring up the media. They basically say, hey, we're going to invade a brothel next Sunday. Um, if you fancy coming along, you know, feel free to report on it. And they basically get to work, they pray all day, they pray all night. And the best part about this plan is that someone, I don't know who it was, they were like, we need to bring a bass drum with us. Bizarre. So they've got a bass drum, they've prayed, you're like, you cannot make this stuff up. So on the Friday evening, they have an all night of prayer. They're just crying out like, Lord, would your kingdom come in this place? Like morning arrives and just with a bit of nervousness, they kind of just walk out into the street and they walk into this brothel. And the way the brothels worked, it was like a courtyard, kind of open area. And so they basically shout out in the middle of this courtyard, any women or girl who wants to come with us and be free, do so. Just come into the middle of this circle, and if you want to, you can come home with us. And immediately, seven girls just run from their rooms, and they come into the middle of this circle. And this is the bit I can't quite imagine, but basically they all just kind of like close in around them. They just start shuffling towards the door. And the brothel owner's like, wait, wait a minute. Like, what, what is happening here? Like, who are you? You can't do this. Um, but they just keep on moving towards the door. And so the brothel owners just start to beat these Salvation Army people. And they're taking hits right at the moment that the media shows up. And the media record all of this. It made front page news um, kind of for the paper that day. And the national paper in Japan, it has to produce three different copies of that paper because the public are like, what's happening? They need to keep up with the demand. And they did this every week for three months until 57 girls have been rescued that way. And these churchgoers, they're ending up in hospital. Like they're being beaten like so badly um, by the brothel owners. There were threats on their life, um, on the hospital doors. They had to have police guards stationed there. But they carried on praying, and they carried on working. And all of it was being recorded by the press. The press were just following this story. And so what happens is the authorities end up having just to um, call an emergency meeting because they're losing face. It's reflecting really badly on the authorities. It's looking awful on their city. And so they're like, we need to make this story go away. So what they do is they pass an imperial edict which says that any woman or girl who wants to leave the brothel can do so on her own accord. And when that edict is passed, 12,000 women walk out of the brothel system that day. 12,000 women go free. Why? Because 100 men and women, ordinary men and women, with a bass drum, they were prepared to share in Christ's suffering so that the life of the kingdom might flow through them. Like they chose not to be numb to the pain of their city, but to raise their voice in prayer so that people could be set free. Like I just, I feel it so strongly, KXC, like there is an invitation for us in this moment of disorientation to rediscover the power of prayer, like yes, for ourselves, but for the sake of this city. And this isn't something we strive after. This isn't something we work really hard for. This is a work of the Spirit in us.